Welcome to the Talent Talks podcast from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I'm Alan Caesar. I have two guests today, Jared Testa and Kurt Esterez, both graduates from the Prescott campus and have been involved in fighting wildfires in the Western US. Jared pilots an Avro RJ-85 for Aeroflight Aerial Firefighting. He earned a bachelor's in aeronautical science from Embry-Riddle in 2001. He was also chief flight instructor at the Prescott campus for six years and was head coach of the Golden Eagles flight team for seven years. Kurt has been assistant director of admissions at Embry-Riddle's Prescott campus for 10 years. He's also worked during wildfire season at the Prescott Air Tanker Base for 14 years and in 2020 took time off to fight wildfires from the ground. He graduated from Embry-Riddle in 2009, also with a bachelor's in aeronautical science. Jared and Kurt, thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. So before I get into the firefighting stuff, uh, you guys graduated eight years apart. Uh, how do you know each other? Overlapped uh, work years at Ember Riddle, and I think I flew with Kurt as a student once or twice too. So uh, I've been a, uh, as an instructor, Kurt was a student. I think we did a check ride or something together, didn't we? Yeah, we did do a check ride. I think it was one of my instrument check rides. Was he uh, was he a good instructor? Uh, hard. Yeah, well, <laughs> don't ask about the performance either. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I have a sense of what it takes to fly for a commercial airline. You need a certain number of hours. You need to be rated on that type of aircraft or sophisticated simulators. But I imagine the requirements to fly in an aerial firefighting capacity is different. Maybe there's, it's so niche that there's no simulator, or maybe there is. Uh, tell me about what it takes to start as a pilot in this field. Best way to describe it is similar but different. It's all a matter of experience, right? Flight hours, uh, a variety of uh, experience prior to uh, getting into the field somewhere similar to uh, airline hiring. We're generally hiring people with 2,500 to 3,000 hours. So it's very similar in that regard. I think you'd see that there's a vast variation in the experiences leading up to that. Myself, I did some cargo part 135 stuff, did the Embry-Riddle flight instruction for a long time. We have people that have other jobs in the firefighting industry, and we have people that come from airlines to work here. So it's a pretty wide variety of folks that we have working here um, doing this job. So it's kind of hard to say one way or another what's different. There's just a large variety of folks that uh, come in with different experiences to get here. We actually have a simulator for our aircraft that we use for training. Uh, it's a full-on level D FAA qualified sim. We can do 100% of our training uh, that's required for the like type ratings and the annual proficiency training. Um, it's being modified uh, right now, as a matter of fact, to include some firefighting processes and uh, procedures. So we'll be able to create a, a simulated fire in there and have smoke and uh, be able to, to assess that fire and, and do the procedures and perform the tactics on uh, and train those sides of the job in the, uh, in the simulator too. So that stuff is being developed and it is coming online. And that's, that's a really good thing. That's, that's great. That's really interesting to hear. Uh, and so you, you said simulate smoke, they're going to like pipe in like smoke into the cockpit. I mean, it'll be smoke from the fire on the ground that you're looking out the window. They, the simulators do have, they do have smoke generators in them. So when you're doing emergency procedures training, you can actually, uh, put smoke in the cockpit and throw the goggles and O2 mask on and, and train that. So just use a kind of a regular old smoke generator for that. Sure. How would you develop the skills specific to this? If you're coming from cargo or you're coming from commercial airline? We do it in the airplane. You do training in the airplane. We do tactical training each year and we're doing that in the airplane. We just finished it up a couple of weeks ago for this year. You're going to start in this role in the right seat as a first officer and eventually transition to the left seat. So it's a lot of on the job mentorship and training from 
the senior captain flying when you're starting out in the right seat as a first officer. So, you know, uh, similar to airline, you're building experience in the right seat before you transition to the, the pilot command role in the left seat. So uh, as far as the flying experience goes, my biggest question, uh, I've always wondered whenever I've seen these videos of this, you know, these aircraft coming low on a, a fire and suddenly dropping all this water. So you're flying with, you know, say, I think it, I looked up your aircraft. I think you're flying with like 3000 gallons at, you know, eight pounds per gallon. That's 24, 25,000 pounds, uh, which is like, you know, like dropping eight or 10 cars at once. So when, when you pull the lever, however you release it in a matter of seconds, that's all gone. What does that feel like from the pilot's seat? You're right. Your math is pretty close. It's 24 to 25,000 pounds. Uh, if it's water, if it's the retardant, the uh, curtain of crew load on the airplane, it's a little closer to 27,000 pounds. It's a little heavier. This airplane that we fly, uh, was very well thought out and well developed and the tank and that load sits pretty close to the center of gravity. So there's not a very large pitch change. Um, you'll feel the weight come off and a little bit of a nose up tendency, but it's not, not a lot at all. And it happens over a couple of seconds and yeah, the airplane gets lighter, but it's not, it's not as violent as, as a lot of people would think. Um, it's a very docile, very just tame maneuver at that point. The, the load will come off and the airplane will pitch up just a little bit, but it's a very easy correction. Do you get that like gut motion where like it, no, no, not at all. I, it's not that quick. Okay. <laughs> so not even like getting to the top of an elevator ride, not even that much excitement. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm a little disappointed to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the movies would maybe tend to make you think something else. <laughs> <laughs> so what's it like to be the first on the scene with this like big picture view of a fire? Is it, beautiful, terrifying? How do you feel in that moment? Or are you just focused on the job? I think you're focused on the job. And I mean, it's rare that we're ever the first on the scene. Um, usually there's folks on the ground and that's kind of what we're there for. You know, they're the, they're the runs running the, uh, running the fire and, and really working the tactics side of things. And our job is really just to support, uh, support those guys and give them any assistance they need. You know, the fire itself, it can be a number of different things. It can be uh, it can be ominous. It can actually have a, a sense of pretty picturesque view to it at times. You get some really odd lighting in there, especially as the sun's going down, and it it can definitely be a, a unique uh, unique view. It's kind of hard to describe, but it's kind of it's it's a it's a good challenge to to show up and uh, and work with the guys on the ground and know that you're helping them out and get to work with them to to build it, uh, an idea of how they want to go about. Uh, assessing the situation with this fire and whether we're working with other airplanes or strictly with the guys on the ground, guys and gals on the ground, there's a whole lot of variety and, and each each mission seems to have a significant amount of difference to it, which I think is uh, what draws a lot of people to the job. Mm -hmm. um, it looks like you sometimes fly very low over the tree line. Uh, do you ever like feel the heat from the fires or like scrape the tree line or like, is it that close? Scrape the tree line? I, I, I certainly hope not. <laughs> that would be the goal to not do that. Our target's right at about 180 feet for the drop. And uh, you kind of fly it similar to a traffic pattern, you know, a, a downwind base and final uh, descending kind of to the drop and, and really minimize your exposure at the low level point is kind of the idea there, uh, just to limit that risk and exposure. But no, you don't usually feel any heat. And honestly, most of the turbulence, I would say, is probably wind driven you know, from the terrain and yeah, the fires, if they get going, they will create their own wind. 
so you'll get bumps but it's not ridiculously crazy it's not you know as extreme as some people might think i don't think you're ever getting to the point where you're feeling the heat from the fire retardant and water are two different tools to use in this in this case and the ground guys uh ground firefighters and Kurt to tell you too retardant is more often used indirect so it's kind of out in front of a, a a fire and they'll either let the fire burn up to it and then the theory is it would burn out when it runs into the retardant or they'll even start a ground firefighter might take off of a line of retardant and start a, a back burn and burn out the fuel between the retardant and the approaching fire so with retardant generally it's an indirect operation so you're not over the flame front you're not you know right over over top of you're not very direct at that point so kurt when you've been working at the forest uh the the tanker base that uh serves the forest service uh tell me a bit about what your job entails yeah so uh we work with a crew of uh varies on bases and capacity of aircraft and how many aircraft are coming in we have about a crew of eight guys that we hire on each year um usually there's about three or four on until we start getting aircraft and we can bring all eight in when it starts to get pretty busy um but what we essentially do is we're just the on-demand uh, sitting at the base uh, waiting kind of like any other type of fires out just waiting for something to happen and the guys and i will basically get an order from the forest service for the aircraft for a certain amount of gallons or pounds of retardant uh, we load it up we mix it on demand too since we are a lc or a liquid concentrate base there's all other bases in the country that are powder uh, where they mix the powder with water um, but it's all on demand order so um, there's a person, usually me or another uh, person manager, uh, that's a mix master um, that's up top, kind of making sure it's the specs, because as Jared will tell you, if it's out of specs, if it's too heavy, it's not safe to fly. So it has, uh, they're basing it off that we're keeping it right in a small window of uh, specs there uh, to safely fly it at that same weight that they're expecting it to come on the aircraft. So especially if you're flying on a place like Prescott where density altitude um, and short uh, runway length is uh, taking into their calculations. Um, but yeah, basically what we're doing is we're loading and getting that on there, we kind of like associate ourselves almost like a little pit crew of getting the retardant onto the aircraft as quickly and efficiently and safely as possible as well, too. So what's the, uh, so when you get the call, there's a fire, what's like the first thing you do in, uh, in preparation? So we're usually sitting around, there's a group of us on call or at the base, depending on, and the staffing levels, depending on how many aircraft or if there's fires in the area already currently going, but like, let's say in May, when our base in Arizona opens up. We'll probably be three or four of us sitting around waiting for our first aircraft of the season to come in but when that call comes in we usually have about uh, if there's no aircraft at the base it's usually 45 minutes to an hour before we'll see an aircraft dropping on a fire um and so we'll just kind of get schooled up um uh get go check all our equipment we work with uh, pumps um we work with water so we make sure everything's ready to go um setting the right on off valves and everything as well too um if it's the aircraft sitting there we usually want to respond in two to three minutes and be down there and starting to load the aircraft. So uh, make sure uh, we got the load amount right and start pumping. And it usually takes us from start to finish and we connect to when we're done, pride ourselves in trying to make it as efficiently as quickly as possible. But probably about 10 to 12 minutes after the first request for the, the load for the aircraft, depending on size of the aircraft, because we do work with Jared's aircraft is considered a lat or a larger tanker. Uh, there's VLATs, which are like the DC-10s and the 747 aircraft, so very large air tankers. And then we also do work with um, single-engine air tankers, which are the small single-engine prop, prop crop dusters as well, too. So kind of a wide variety of different aircraft and different load times for each one. 
when would you, uh, do you have different levels of the mixture of the water and retardant? Do you, uh, is there a particular time you would use only water or why would you use one over the other? Depending on the fire request, in all honesty, most of the time, uh, in the 14 years I've worked, uh, I've probably given out maybe five or six water loads uh, for our, our particular base. So most of the time they're requesting the retardant uh, that comes from it. And so there's a concentrated level of retardant sitting on base and, uh, three different 10,000 gallon tanks. And then we have a big, large water tank and it basically has a, um, uh, a mixture device that we use that mixes it uh, as it's the suction is being pulled through by the pumps. And we uh, set the level of retardant to water uh, to hit the kind of perfect five to one ratio is what we're looking for. Um, and we have someone that's using what's looking at the salinity level is how we measure it with a, what's called a refractometer. Um, and we're looking to see that it's staying within that salinity level. So it's uh, the right uh, spec load for those aircraft to take out on fire. Hmm. How do you refill those, uh, you know, those 10,000 gallon tanks? Uh, especially like I imagine these fires are happening during the dry season. So there's already a difficulty with water supply. So we're connected to like the city water. We do have backup of well at our base as well, too. Um, other places, too, I've been sent out to locations where we use water tenders, um, and that's a different operation with helicopters and everything, but I've had as many as 10 water tenders, daisy chain, kind of just linking up to a, uh, what we call a pumpkin or just a big old pool of water, and we're filling it up and mixing on demand on those spots as well, too. So water is always a big concern with our operation. We sometimes burn about 350 gallons per minute while we're mixing, so that is a big part of the operation itself. Now you mentioned the uh, you know the air density and the short runway at Prescott. I just uh, read uh, in the last sometime in the last couple of weeks that they're going to be expanding the runway there. Um, is that something you're uh, you're pretty excited about? I think Jared's more excited about it than me. Uh, it will it will be much appreciated. <laughs> yeah, we uh, most of the time most of the bases are at sea level or locations with large runways, so uh, they're taking a full a full load where they're taking uh, downloads from our base as well too. So. Uh, because of the safety of the air density and everything as well too so that will make a big kind of safety window for them as well absolutely good improvement do you guys do any of the post the pre-flight check like after you've loaded up the the slurry or the water um are you doing uh pre-flight checks we don't uh they have mechanics usually coming out of the aircraft walking around a lot of times doing checks they have a guy on the ground as well too sometimes it really depends on how the operation is going um most of uh, luckily being mixed in brutal part our location here, I usually try to hire students from our aviation program just because they're a little bit more, they love being around the aircraft and everything. Um, but we always tell them too, since they're a little more familiarized, if they see something, kind of say something. So we, we have a radio sets as well too. We can call over to the Forest Service ramp agents and let them know that we see something that looks abnormal so they can relay it up to uh, Jared and uh, his crew or any pilot in their crew to kind of come out to double check it. Because after you see a plane, you know, hundred times over the season and something looks a little different, it doesn't hurt just to mention it uh, because safety is the biggest aspect of that operation. What we usually do is we'll show up first thing in the morning, whether we're, you know, usually you don't know what's going to necessarily happen that day. You don't necessarily have orders to go fly first thing in the morning. So we show up first thing when we come on duty and actually do all the pre-flight checks, do everything that's required at that point, go through, uh, make sure the airplane's good to go for the day, and then kind of be on standby so that when we do get that order, that first dispatch, uh, we can be out readily uh, pretty quick. Um, usually it's within taxiing out within less than 15 minutes from from getting the piece of paper in the in the dispatch order. So uh, we try to get everything prepped uh, first thing in the morning before there's any actual uh, 
activity so that we're good to go and we can uh, respond efficiently. Now, I imagine this is this seems to me like it would be pretty rough use for for an airplane. Does do they see heavier maintenance? Do they start to look more beat up as the season goes on? We have an exceptional crew of mechanics, uh, and we have two with us anytime we're on the road, um, and they they take a really good they do a really good job of taking care of the airplanes. Um, the airplanes go through a, a pretty extensive uh, maintenance program each winter, based off of uh, they're ab- they're actually kind of a considered a low utilization because we don't fly the airplanes more than a few hundred hours each each summer compared to what the airplanes were doing in their previous life of 2,500 to 3,000 hours a year. But it's a different utilization, and there's there's different factors that are applied to different components based off of the amount of cycles and stresses that now they're inspected more frequently or replaced more frequently. And that's done each winter at our hangar here in Spokane. But we have a, a our mechanics do a pretty good job of keeping the airplanes in, uh, in, in good operating shape. Uh, now, Kurt, last year you went firefighting on the ground during the, those record-breaking sort of wildfires. Uh, tell me about where you went and what you were doing. Yeah, I went to uh, mainly Colorado and California, where a lot of the action was. Um, I started season in May, and due to COVID, I uh, had a little more leeway with uh, uh, working in missions and not traveling. So I took the opportunity to kind of help out more on the fire side. More so what I did is not kind of like what you hear with like hotshot or ground crews or engine crews, uh, where they're out there directly uh, putting out wine. We were more so of a support system with them. Kind of um, my company, we utilize retardant aspects in fixed-wing aircraft, helicopters, and also on a ground application level as well, too. So I had opportunities to actually go out, um, especially on the Sequoia Complex or the Castle Fire up in uh, the Sequoia National Forest, um, and work in places like Camp Nelson and do some ground applications and work on the line uh, right next to the fire line and everything as well, too. Now, you mentioned um, that you uh, bring in, um, you know, Embry-Riddle students to come work uh, at the, the tanker base. Um, is that is that how you got into this uh, line of work? Yeah, I literally was working out at the gym as like a sophomore or junior, and one of my buddies was like, "Hey, we need some extra help. Do you want to help out?" I'm like, "Yeah, I always see these aircraft flying over. They look pretty cool." And I literally got thrown into the mix the next day. Got trained on the job. Uh, we do it a little bit differently now, but uh, yeah, I literally was thrown in on the job and learned on the spot. Uh, it was a pretty awesome experience, and from that point forward, it was kind of a hook just uh, to be around it and. Uh, I've had the opportunity to go see and do some pretty cool stuff since then as well, too. That's great. Um, uh, we had a, uh, we put a call out for questions on our Facebook page earlier this morning. And, um, one of the ones we got, uh, I, I'll, I have to tone down the language on it a little bit. What's the, for, for both of you, what's, uh, what's your biggest, you know, holy cow kind of moment that you've had in this, in this line of work? Kurt, you go first. I'd say actually last year on that, um, that Sequoia complex. I was sitting in a, a field in Camp Nelson. We had removed our uh, removed our equipment to a new location, and uh, at that time, I was working with our helicopter operations, where we were basically filling their retardant buckets up or their buckets up with retardant, um, and helping with point protection or um, basically kind of uh, helping protect little towns in, within that forest. And the winds and uh, fire direction had shifted towards us, and that's probably the closest I've ever been to a fire front uh, in my career doing this since it was my first year out as well too and probably one of the closer times our crews have been out there we were over in direct danger but to hear a fire ripping down a mountain it really does sound like a freight train coming at you kind of what jared was touching on other it's you know it's destructive and 
sad to see, but it's also awe-inspiring just to stand there and look at something that powerful and, uh, and even has its own kind of beautiful disaster kind of look in it too with the colors and everything as well as it's coming down. So it was definitely an eye-opener. We kind of called our area there in Camp Nelson the donut hole because the fire basically burned all around us. And we did out, um, and not like really close, like it, within the, the whole town limits itself, but it was pretty fun to be out there and actually get out there and do some ground application and help out with our water tenders and put retardant around the green is they called the unburned and uh, help protect uh, more housing and stuff and actually that from what i gathered afterwards because uh, i didn't finish out there i actually timed out with the 21 days being there that that area uh, didn't uh, have any suffer any major damage and little houses uh, outhouses and stuff made and some houses lost but not major catastrophic loss so for me i think they're kind of different maybe not what the intent of the question was they're not moments that you may have scared yourself or anything but to me i i think of one back my first season flying the airplane and i was first officer and flying with a, a good friend of mine who's captain we were on a fire in southern california and it was just a breezy day and a bit blustery and i remember we just kind of got our our butt kicked a little bit in turbulence going into this drop and we're following a lead airplane and the lead says, oh, hey, a little bump here as I see the lead airplane get rolled about 50 degrees of bank <laughs> from this turbulence. And and now granted, it's smaller, it's impact a little bit more, but it was it was a little bit of a bump. But we did this drop and it, it was basically through a guy's backyard in this house as the as the fireworks came up to it. And you could see the guys throwing stuff in the truck, evacuating from the house. And it just kind of makes you Think of the uh, the levity of the situation there, the uh, uh, intensity of, of that, you know. So it's it, it's kind of like wow, that's that was for me that was that was an eye opening one, uh, just as to how uh, how serious the job actually is and how critical it is for for helping the folks out on the ground, whether that be firefighters or or residents or whoever there. So yeah, that's really intense. Um, on on the flip side, uh, do you spend a lot of time hanging out at the base waiting for a call? And what do you do in your downtime? <laughs> yeah, there is that, um, and especially you know at the end, beginning beginning and end of the season, things are kind of slow. So a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of lawn chair time underneath the wing sometimes. Um, uh, everybody, I think, has their hobbies. I, I tend to stay pretty busy doing random other stuff. Um, whether it be work related or just personal related or, you know, try to stay off of Amazon and Craigslist because, you know, that just drains the bank account, right? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a good bit of downtime, but uh, it's also a good time to take some time and brush up on procedures and items that you might not use all the time. So it's a good time to review some stuff too. So, or, you know, play beanbag toss with Kurt and the guys at the, at the, at the base there. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, Kurt, working in admissions, uh, do you see students who specifically want to get into this line of work, and what do you tell them? Yeah, especially out here in the West Coast. Um, a lot of times, uh, you know, the, the Californians, the students from Arizona, uh, even the Pacific Northwest, they I mean, kind of their state bird of the summer. They see these planes flying a lot, um, and uh, a lot of times they, that's what's driven them to want to be pilots. Uh, and I have a lot of questions usually about students that those areas are like i want to be you know, aerial firefighter how do i get into that career um so that is definitely uh, an interest out here on the west coast uh, there's uh obviously a lot of talk lately with how cyclical uh, commercial air travel uh industry can be with the you know there was the big drop in air travel after 9 11 and again in 2020 so everybody's kind of talking about 9 11 as well um and we're still rebounding from uh last year um i would think that wildfires are 
a bit different in that regard. Of course, last year, be it was an especially bad one uh, in terms of wildfires. Um, do you have significantly worse and better years? What is the business like? They're across the board, Alan. I mean, it's it's hard to say. 2019 was a was a pretty slow year um, as far as activity. And 2020, it, it's it's even really odd because 2020 was a pretty busy year, but the way the activity ebbs and flows through the year and how we do a schedule and we work two weeks on and two weeks off that, I mean, for me, last year was actually one of the slowest years I've had. Just my timing didn't work out to where I was on duty when it was kind of like the slower period. So I didn't, it was, I think it was my fewest flight hours I'd flown in the year um, last year, even how busy it was. So it's, it's kind of odd and it's just like, that micro level that it's so much variety and it, it just kind of depends, but there are definitely seasons that are busier and seasons that are not as busy. Kurt, during the off season, you're working in admissions, but uh, Jared, what do you do in the, uh, in the off season? Uh, it's a combination between snow skiing and uh, participating in our training programs. I teach in our sim now um, and uh, in, and we generally kind of keep pretty busy. There's some training events we have to do as we go through the through the off season, but uh, it's it's uh, it allows for enough time for some recreation too. Sure, sure, that's great. Now, uh, Jared, I don't mean to pull too hard on the intercampus rivalry, but uh, and Kurt, you're welcome to uh, pitch in on this as well. But I, I, it's hard not to notice that the Golden Eagles flight team at Prescott have won a lot more NIFA championships than Daytona Beach. Uh, and you coached the tight flight team for a while. Uh, why do you think that is? Is it the experience flying in the mountains? Is there something in the water? What, what makes you guys so good? Let's go with something in the water. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, it's, I, I don't know, Alan, um, I, I, I worked really closely with a lot of the folks from the Daytona Beach campus when I was coaching the team. Um, and uh, it's a lot of great folks. And uh, I think they've made some really good improvements. And I think they've, they've done well recently. Um, and Prescott's done well and had struggles too. So, I mean, nobody's immune from doing, uh, performing in either, either end of the spectrum, really. Um, I, in either way, I think it's just a it, success in that realm is is a level of intensity, I think, really. And it's uh, I had a, a coach when I was on our team that basically said, you got to want it so bad that you can taste it. You know, and it's that it's that kind of intensity that, that motivates you to perform at your best. Um, and and I, I, that's that's kind of the key outside of that. It's identifying the right people that that have that and put them together and uh identify their strengths and put a team together that, that's going to succeed all right um and so i want to ask you guys about the uh, dick samuels uh, he's something of a legendary flight instructor uh from prescott and in 2017 uh there was an article in lift magazine that was written by melanie azam whose office is actually like a couple doors down from mine um it that the story was about how Jared, you and an alumna named Katie Pribble started an endowment fund that would create both flight instructor training scholarship and name the flight instructor building after Dick Samuels. Tell me about why you uh, decided to spearhead that. I didn't know you were going to ask that question, but the quote I just gave you about intensity and wanting so bad you could taste it, that came from, from Dick. So he was our flight team coach. Uh, I think it had to do with just the level of interaction and level of care he showed for students uh particularly uh as a coach for our flying team 
Uh, I think the success we had through the 2000s and into into recent years, uh, I I contributed all to him. He was the one that uh, really instilled that foundation, and and I know myself and uh, and several others. Katie and I were talking one day, just kind of had this harebrained idea of, hey, we need to do this, and uh, we talked to some other alum and and got it got together and uh, worked with. Steve Babinski and the rest of the uh, development office there in Rural and made that happen. And uh, I think it was a great, great recognition for, a, for a, a guy that's meant a lot to a lot of people. Yeah. Now, can you tell me, uh, you know, what it was like to learn from him and give me an example of one of his sort of non-traditional uh, instruction methods? <laughs> Do you have a buzzer <laughs> handy? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was great. I, uh, I, I, I absolutely loved it. Uh, all the interactions and flying I did with him. I remember a, a check ride I took with him. It was my freshman year, first semester, and it was my private multi-engine add-on. And my instructor said, hey, you just made the flight team. I'm getting it. Dick's going to do your check ride. And, and all I had heard were all these war stories from everybody that had done check rides. And like, you know, you just be giving you a hard time and everything else. And and I remember I was so nervous and went out and flew. And I, I, I did all right, you know, and everything else. And I, uh, it kind of the last pattern, I, I turned kind of really tight, turning base to final, almost to a point that it was kind of an excessive bank. And there was a guy turning base to final for the other runway that come to know later, there was some personal interactions between this person that was not every real guy flying his airplane and, and, and Dick. And this guy's like, yeah, we got the Duchess overshooting the, the left in sight. And Dick grabbed the mic. He's like, we're not, we're not overshooting over the radio. And I was just like, I was an 18-year-old kid. I'm like, what did he just say? <laughs> you know? So, but it was that kind of, uh, you know, the, the funny part about that is that four years later, we're standing out alongside the runway and grading flight team landing practices and, and Dick's out there. And this guy, same guy, same airplane happens to be in the pattern for this runway. And, uh, you know, it's calm Saturday morning. We're out there and, and Dick's like, hey, there's your buddy flying. And I'm like, huh? And I knew exactly what he was talking about, but I did not believe he remembered that check ride. And uh, he's like, yeah, that's the guy that you were overshooting on your 2A check ride. I'm like, that was three and a half years ago, you know? And, and but that was, Dick had 14, some thousand hours of dual given. I bet you he could tell you something about every student he flew with in every flight. And I think that was the, uh, uh, the best part about it is he truly cared uh, to see your success. And uh, yeah, yeah. That's great. Now, uh, Dick retired in, uh, I think, 2001. So, uh, um, Kurt, when you were studying at Embry-Riddle, did you have a sense of his legacy and his instruction style when you were learning there? So I started in 2005 with Embry-Riddle. Um, definitely had a sense of the legacy. I mean, I, Jared was in his kind of the students that kind of were brought up by him and everything were the ones that were working as training managers, chief flight instructor down the road, and um, just the, the instructor core. It was um, it was a very strong core of instructors when I, I went through it then, and they were very knowledgeable, and they definitely did all care about our success as students as well, too. Now, as as somebody who works in admissions, or uh, this being a scholarship specifically for flight instructors, do you think that scholarships are, are like that are helpful in encouraging students to come to to the school? Absolutely, and continuing on and building their hours. I mean, um, uh, we all know going through flight, it's not uh, um, a, an easy cost to pay at times, but um, 
to having those extra additional add-ons and help with scholarships can definitely make all the difference in pursuing that uh, passion in aviation. So yeah, that definitely does make a difference, those types of scholarships. All right, guys. Well, uh, we're going to take a, a short break, and then we'll continue on to the lightning round. You came to Embry-Riddle because you're an aerospace enthusiast. So there's a good chance that whether you studied engineering, maintenance, cybersecurity, or business, you might own an airplane too. We want to share your story and revel in all the cool aircraft owned by alumni like you. If you're a flying eagle, please visit alumni.erau.edu aircraft and tell us about your plane. Submit a picture and a short story, and we may post it to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. You'll also be the first to be invited to our alumni fly-in events at Homecoming in both Daytona Beach and Prescott. As a thank you, we have a limited stash of Hot Wings Cessna 172 model planes painted up in Embry-Riddle livery. Be one of the first to fill out the form, and we'll put one of those in the mail for you absolutely free. Visit alumni.erau.edu aircraft and sign up today. Now, back to the show. So now it's time for our lightning round. It's not necessarily fast. We just couldn't think of a better name. Um, I'm going to give you guys five questions, and you're going to give me five answers. Are you ready? You can fly any plane ever made to any destination. What do you choose? Jared, this one goes to you. Uh, any airplane uh, to any destination. Uh, I, you know, I always said it was the uh, uh, F4 Phantom II. Uh, low, fast, and super loud. Uh, just something about smoke pouring out of the back of those exhausts going screaming fast and they're so loud. I always, I always like that. And I'll give it the uh, cliche destination of anywhere home because that's about the best place to be flying is going home. <laughs> that's great. Kurt, what about you? Uh, for me, I think it's been the jet. I've always loved it. Like as a kid, um, actually one flew over me about 100 feet off the deck uh, in Utah once going to Lake Powell. So it'd have to be the D1B Lancer, or the bone as they call it. That's always impressed me as an aircraft. It's a supersonic bomber. Okay, question two. If you could uh, read only one book for the rest of your life, what would it be? I just finished reading, well, a year or two ago, Freedom Found, which is Warren Miller's biography. And uh, if you don't know who he is, he's a he's a lifelong ski bum and ski movie producer. And uh, I just, it was, a, it was a really good book. And I, I liked it. So it kind of grounds you in some some of life's realities and uh it's good uh for me um I'll go cliche aviation pilot guy but uh right stuff um all that that kind of era of pilots really interests me and everything as well too all right who's your favorite cartoon character peter griffin <laughs> that's a good one he knew that one right off the bat uh for me for some reason and I guess growing up from junior higher on knowing the show, but um, Randy Marsh from South Park has always cracked me up. So That's great. All right. Uh, picture in your mind uh, your ideal grilled cheese sandwich, the most perfect one you could possibly have. You're about to take a bite out of this thing. What, what's in it? An insane amount of cheddar cheese. <laughs> All right. What kind of bread do you use? We'll go with sourdough. Uh, for me, it's going to be... Um, Beet cheddar for sure. Sourdough, definitely. That's one of my favorite breads to have on it. But I would throw some hatch green chilies and bacon in there. All right. If you could live for a week as any person in history, who would it be? I want to go with Warren, but I, I used his book. So I'll give you the cliche, maybe a, a cliche uh, aviation answer and say uh, uh, Bob Hoover. Yeah. Let's say Jared and I had the pleasure of grabbing drinks with him at Oshkosh a couple of years back. 
Yeah, he's an awesome guy to talk to. I would probably say Bob Hoover too, but I, I'm not going to use a generalized person. I would love to be someone that was flying in that World War II to Korean War era of aircraft just because of how many leaps and bounds in aviation. I've always said there's a generation I wanted to go back to. I'd want to be a pilot around World War II, not because of the war type, but just the aircraft and everything. I chose Hoover because he's done a lot of incredible things and had a lot of incredible experiences. And just to be able to pick a week of that, you would you would gain so much from from that. But I, I agree with Kurt. I, I think it's the same thing. That era of aviation, there were so many technological advances and changes, and and just I mean, being right there on on the uh, kind of the leading edge of the jet age and all of that. I, I just to experience any of that would be phenomenal. All right. Well, thanks very much, guys, for joining us for the Talent Talks podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Alan. That was good. It was fun. All right. Talent Talks is a production of the Embry-Riddle Office of Philanthropy and Alumni Engagement and the students at Wicked Radio. We're coming at you from my office at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, Florida. Jared is at his home in Spokane, Washington, and Kurt is at his office in Embry-Riddle's Prescott campus. This episode was recorded by me and edited by Cindy Puckett. Michelle Day is our program manager. Bill Thompson is executive director of alumni engagement, and Tony Brown is executive director of communications. Please send us your thoughts about our show. Visit alumni.erau.edu slash podcast and click the feedback link. I read all the messages that come in. Thanks for downloading us. We'll see you next time.